What? You didn't take the opportunity to do the we're rolling thing, like the good vibrations thing. Well, I'm I've, proud of you. I've done that. Yeah, many times. I mean, that's not, you know, I'm not going to go good vibrations, take one. No, no, you're not. Or first beat on the last bar of the intro. Yeah, one, two, three, but uh, welcome to episode 16 of 2NX Podcast, and uh, I'm one of your hosts, I'm Sean. And I'm Lisa. Also one of your hosts. And before we get into anything, just a couple of things I wanted to alert our listeners to. First of all, now, I don't know the logic behind this, but apparently it's highly recommended by professional podcasters that in addition to the usual podcast feed you submit to, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and all that, you also put your podcast on YouTube, even if it's not a video podcast. Well... Good news, those of you who actually like listening on YouTube, uh, you can actually find us on YouTube now. Every single episode is now on YouTube. Ooh. So uh, I'll link that in the uh, show notes at tunex.fab4it.com. And um, also thanks to uh, the folks at uh, the Endless Harmony Forum, we now have a banner that rotates. Yay! Um, in that forum. So those of you who discovered us by clicking on that banner, welcome. Just a little bit about us. Uh, we are a married couple. We have been married for going on 24 years. We've been a couple for 25 years. And it's all because of the Beach Boys. And it's all because of the Beach Boys. We have a heck of a lot more in common than just the Beach Boys, but that's kind of what brought us together. Yeah. Those of you who remember Usenet about a thousand years ago. Yep. We first met up in the Rec Music Artists Beach Boys and Alt Music Beach Boys groups, but we only got together once we met in person, which we just passed that anniversary. Yeah, 25 Five years. years. We should have done a 25th anniversary special from Waikiki Beach. Oh, God. Let's see if we can get Joe Piscopo. Yeah, for seriously, if you can track it down. I don't know if offhand if it's on YouTube. I, I hope it is. it is. I think somebody but actually did a remaster of if it on you, YouTube. If you have not seen the Beach Boys 25th anniversary TV special, which was probably taped in late 1986, it was aired in early 1987, you must check it out. It is so 80s. <laughs> Good Lord. Like with... People who were of the moment. Trust me, the people who were the guests were really popular at that time. But by yep. 1990, they were never heard from again. That, that's mostly true. Because that's, yeah. that's what a lot of the 80s were like, was like. And it was full of people doing the hang loose hand gesture and looking like complete yeah, idiots and wearing neon sunglasses. And <laughs> For best results, get a group of fellow fans together oh my and God. screen it. Yeah, because we, we never noticed things like how Glenn Campbell was wearing um, these really tight corduroy shorts and he kept reaching behind him probably to pick the shorts out of his butt crack man yeah you can make a drinking game out of that oh thing. my god and especially how Just be prepared to have paramedics on staff for alcohol poisoning if you do make a drinking game out of it how many times throughout the special the beach boys go you know some member of the beach boys goes 
25 years. Like, I don't know if that was a running gag or what, but it was pretty funny. <laughs> it was an unintentional running gag, if anything else. Good and, Lord. And don't miss the part. I think it's close to the end <laughs> where Mike is reading an introduction. I mean, obviously reading off of a cue card. Every single word, including song lyrics, were on. they were and, all cue carded. And Brian is standing like he practically has his chin on Mike's shoulder and he's mouthing every word as Mike says it. <laughs> and I mean, again, I don't know if Brian did that as kind of a gag, you know, for that Mike wouldn't even see until he saw the special itself or if Brian was just reading the cue card and didn't realize he was mouthing the words. I, he probably like, didn't realize it. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it is hysterical to watch. Good night. Granted, though, the performances are really, really good. Oh, yeah. There's some great, like, Ray Charles sings Sail on Sailor. Belinda Carlisle does Wouldn't It Be Nice. Yeah. Um, let's see. What a, like... What else was really... Um, Carl sang I Can Hear Music with Gloria Loring, if I remember correctly. Yes. And Jeffrey Osborne sang God Only Knows, which mm -hmm. is a crying shame because you really want Carl to sing that. Yeah, but there were some really great guests, so check it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll link it in the show notes if uh, we can find it on YouTube. And uh, we're recording this on the 60th anniversary of the release of the Surfing USA album, Yay. too. And the reason I'm bringing this up, I just have to get this out there. It's always been said that you never know who's listening to your podcast until they kind of come forward because either you said something wrong or because they want equal time or whatever. So having said that, if anybody who is employed by the Beach Boys, BRI, or Bry Mel or anybody is listening to this, I just want you to know Lisa and I have a 1963 copy of the Surfing USA album that's in really good shape. The cover's nice. It has all the songs listed on the bottom. Hit us up. We'll lend it to you for, for photo shoots. Or either that or explain to us why every single time you post a picture of the album or reissue it on CD or whatever, you use the 80s reissue version that does not list Surf Jam and Stoked. Does it actually say a capital reissue at the I don't top? think so. No, no, it doesn't have that. Because that would it, be that would be really bad. That would be no. Oh, that that would be the equivalent of I think it was in Endless Harmony where they show a copy of either Sunflower. I think it's Sunflower where it says digitally remastered at the yeah. bottom. So they use the Caribou CD for it. Well, hey, considering how long it took me to find a vinyl copy in the late nineties. Maybe they couldn't locate one. <laughs> to this day, I've only seen four vinyl copies from that era, and two of them are in our apartment. Yeah. So, Well, yeah. yours is a uh, UK release. Yes, yes, with uh, cotton fields. The stateside yep. release. Yep. But uh, something I wanted to go back to is uh, what you were talking about before, well, we were talking about before, the 25th anniversary special. That might fall under the category of what the hell were they thinking? Because it was, there was, even though it's fun to watch and all that, it's very cringy. And we actually did an entire episode on really poor decisions made by the Beach Boys and related. Well, to be fair, I think some of it is, it would be cringy at any time. But I think some of it all, 
also is cringy because of the total 80s-ness of it. I'll give you. Like watching in retrospect, like the fact that they had many shots of women in tiny little neon bikinis with their boobs practically hanging out. (laughs) And the big puffy hair and everything. Oh, yeah. But tonight... But for this episode, we're going the other direction, and we're going to talk about things that the Beach Boys did right. And I want to start it off with something we haven't done in the past few episodes, and I want to kick it off with a with a Brianism, a quirky quote from Brian Wilson. I don't know what the source is on this, but the interviewer said, by the time you recorded Sunflower, all the other guys were contributing musically. How did it feel letting go of complete control? Brian's response was, I thought it was appropriate at the time. Carl had really come into his own as a producer and was helping with the vocal arranging. Dennis was flourishing as a songwriter and knew what he wanted on his records. It was a natural transgression. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, And that's actually going to be linked to something I want to talk about at some point during this episode. Yeah, we figured, hey, we we did an episode based on really questionable to put it mildly in some cases things that the beach boys did decisions they made we want to give equal time we hope equal at least to some of the good things they did and there were many well yeah and i mean the reason why i think we did the you know what's wrong with the beach boys discussion first is over the years the discussions that we've had about the beach boys and yes we've been together over 25 years And we're still talking about the Beach Boys. We have not run out of things to talk about. And, but we're also huge Beatles fans. And it's like when you look at the Beach Boys in parallel with the Beatles, especially when they were both dealing with Capitol Records, you know, Capitol was the Beatles' US distributor. When you look at the marketing plan, the promotion for the Beatles, the Beach Boys definitely did not get the same level of treatment. And I and we know that that is a big part of that is the wheeling and dealing and salesmanship that Brian Epstein was able to broker with yeah. uh, Capitol Records. But still, it just doesn't feel fair. And that the Beach Boys didn't have a Brian Epstein to literally set himself on fire for them. So it's easy to, when you look at things that way, it's easy to say, man, the Beach Boys didn't have the same level of accomplishments and didn't do the same things and didn't have the same things done for them. But when you separate that and you look at kind of the broader spectrum, there is a lot more that meets the eye. Ho oh. <laughs> ho. This no, this isn't a Beatles discussion. Yeah. We're not discussing Correct. Beatles things. For those who don't know, that was a reference to Help and if you've never seen Help, when you're done listening to this, go see Help. Yeah, seriously. It's uh, very quotable. Where do we want to start discussing what they did right? Is there anything that sticks out to you that would be a good kickoff? Well, I don't know why I just snapped my finger by the way. Well, one thing we can start with, since this ties back to our previous episode discussing the events in and around 1965, and this was the first thing I put on my list, letting Brian stay home. Mm. (laughs) Because when you consider that was 
probably a pretty revolutionary thing. I mean, again, to bring up the Beatles, that predated the Beatles doing the same thing by over, well over a year. Yep. And the Beatles stayed at home for pretty much the same reasons that Brian wanted. Just more time in the studio, less time on the road. And as we brought up before, when a band is touring... Yes, that's where they make their money. That's where they really pull in new fans and get to do promotions and things like that. But it's nonstop between just the rigors of traveling, checking in and out of hotels, being away from your home, your stuff, your dog, your having to eat in restaurants all the time and not having your own food and your own things and having to get up every day and put on your show clothes and have DJs and promotion people asking you the same questions over and over. It probably really wears on you after a while. And And what what did we count? 23 days straight. They did 30 concerts without a day off. Yeah. And I mean, Brian literally may have been getting the shakes being away from the recording studio, the places where he and the spaces where he could really create. Yeah. And do the things that he loved. I mean, because Brian can get up on stage and sing, but that's not his bag. His bag is being in a recording studio behind a console with the talkback button in his hand and making stuff happen. And the fact that the record label, that their management, that the other guys, I mean, yeah, they may not have been in love with this idea, but the fact is nobody forced Brian to stay on the road. Like yep. they all knew that love it or hate it, it was really ultimately the best decision. And look what came out of that. Oh, California girls, let him run wild. Little girl I once knew, guess I'm dumb. Well, and also Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds, the Summer Days and Summer Nights album. Yeah. The whole party album, which for a Christmas time quickie was, oh, that sounds dirty, (laughs) was a brilliant idea and something very different and unique for the time. Well, that had nothing to do with Brian staying home, though, really. Yeah, but he was probably clear-headed enough that he could come up with that idea and say, hey, let's do this. And that he also could put it together pretty quickly, because we saw from the sessions, there were only like four dates that they worked on the main sessions with maybe one or two overdub dates. Hmm. And another thing, are we sure that that was Brian's idea to do the party theme? Well, even if it wasn't... Mike and Carl had a lot to do with it, too. But even if it wasn't Brian's idea, it was Brian's execution. Brian made it happen, and even though it was a studio creation... He damn sure made it sound like it was recorded live at a Beach Boys party. Like, it sure sounded like it was in somebody's rec room or patio or whatever. So, it worked. And he made it work. And yeah, pet sounds, good vibrations, smile, all this stuff was... Why did you you make a face? I don't know. (laughs) It's hard not to when you talk about the Beach Boys and... (laughs) Their idiosyncrasies. Yeah, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about the good stuff. Well, still, the the good stuff is is idiosyncratic, too. And yes, you could say, well, but Smile wasn't finished back then. The fact is, 
it was still a concept that Brian came up with. And he and, was able to do something with it. Yeah, he was able. I mean, we we did have finished tracks. It was still pieces. I mean, he made heroes and villains. Would he have that been time. able to do that if he were out on the road oh, with the rest no. of the guys? Probably not. No. That's heroes and villains is very complicated. And that brings me to probably the a natural transition to my first contribution to this what they did right. Now, I can already hear stuff being thrown against walls from our listeners, and we haven't even released this episode yet. And just hear me out. One thing that people did right, whoever was involved in all the decisions and all this, what happened with Smile? Both recording it, canceling it, recording Smiley Smile, Brian's 2004 completion of Smile, and the 2011 Smile Sessions box set, that all happened as it should have. And I will defend that for the rest of my life, or until I change my mind, which history shows maybe in about 25 years, I will change my mind. So are you saying that the whole mythology of Smile that built up over the years because of bootlegs, where even people, wait, 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 you hear me out. I'm hearing you out. Where even people in the industry, fellow musicians, celebrities knew about it, that that was part that was actually part of the story not that it was deliberately intentional but that became part of the smile well, yeah, of story course. and made it even sweeter than if the album had been finished and released in 1967 well of course and i mean there are so many reasons behind my um i can't think of the proper word um thing let's just say <laughs> about putting the whole smile debacle in this things that they did right, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally, they should have canceled smile. And I've discussed this with you many times. And I think you agree to me at least to an extent, at the very least to an extent, if not fully that releasing smile would have been a bad decision or if at least with the beach boys name attached to it, because People expect a certain thing from the Beach Boys. When you think about it, Pet Sounds really wasn't that much of a departure for the Beach Boys. It was still familiar enough. Yes, it was familiar enough. It was definitely evolutionary. Smile, though, was like nothing that they had ever done before. Well, it's like what we've discussed, that if it had come out before June 1st, 1967, before Sgt. Pepper, it would have been... Probably, I mean, the critics probably would have loved it. A lot of like oh, rock yeah. journalists would have gone bananas for yep. it. And like super hip people would have totally dug it. Like it probably would have been a cult classic. It would have kind of hung out. It would have been an Odyssey and Oracle kind of thing. Well, it would have been like music professors, rock journalists, college yeah. students. Like they would have gotten it. They would have dug it. But it wouldn't have been a big hit and it wouldn't have really been a thing. It would have been rediscovered maybe in the 70s, maybe hmm. in not until the 90s, who knows. But if it had come out even on the same day as Sgt. Pepper, 
it would have been considered a Sgt. Pepper copycat. Absolutely. That's exactly where I was going. And Beatles fans, before you say a damn thing, yes, we know in England, Sgt. Pepper's actually came out May 26th. But you see our point. The scheduled date was was June 1st, US date June 2nd. We know, but still. Yeah. But it would have been, I think, just your general Beach Boys record-buying fans, they wouldn't have been... I mean, even even when you look at, um, oh, I think it's, was it an anthology or was it something else where there's a clip from early 1967 from American Bandstand when they showed the Penny Lane. That was Lane. something else, yeah. Okay, they showed the Penny Lane and Sgt. Pepper films. That was the films. thing that ABC did in 2000. Yeah, and they, so it's early 1967, they show the Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields promo films, and these kids are like, I don't even know if they could dig the music because this one girl didn't like the mustaches. <laughs> yeah, and this other guy said, they look like my grandfather. Yeah. like They, they all looked kind of like, huh? I mean, in a few months, the kids got it, but yeah. kids in early 1967, would they have appreciated Smile? Probably not. I doubt they would Again, would've. we don't know what the finished, finished, finished product nope. would have been like, but... I'm just thinking if it was anything like what was put out in 2004. Or even like any of the custom lineups that people have put together over the years. Like the intellectuals would have, <laughs> would have, would have gotten it. Yeah. It really would have been something that probably would have been embraced more by the classical music crowd. But your top 40 good guys kind of people, they probably wouldn't have. Yeah, it's especially if it had been put, if Smile was in distinct movements with the songs running into each other as opposed to song, pause, song, pause, Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, we have no way of knowing. We don't know what Smile would have been like then, but just from what we've heard, it's like, yeah, this is... I don't know if people would have been ready for it. And also, this is a very hear-me-out thing. Smiley Smile is exactly what should have happened at the time. It really is. Because for years, I was among the crowd who thought, oh, Smiley Smile is basically Brian just trying to kill Smile and put it in the ground. And uh, the new thinking, and I kind of go along with it, is that the reason that Smiley Smile came out and Smile did not is that Brian recognized that there was a change happening and he had to be on top of that change. And that's exactly what it was. If you listen to how Smile progressed, you'll notice that at one point during the sessions, suddenly there weren't these big productions that Brian was doing. You didn't have your big Heroes and Villains, Child is Father of the Man, Surf's Up things. Vegetables recorded in April. Very, very simple. There's not a lot of big, like, wall of soundy orchestration to it. There are a couple of other songs I can't think of right off the top of my head. And when you listen to some of the outtakes that are on the box set, a lot of them sound dangerously close to what ended up being Smiley Smile. So there was a very smooth transition from Smile into Smiley Smile. So Brian knew what he was like. Artistically, Smiley Smile is exactly what he should have done at the time. Notice how the production was so pulled back. It was very raw. That's exactly what was about to happen. Big case in point. Again, we go back to the Beatles. What was their next real album? The White Album, which was basic rock and roll, really, Mm -hmm. with a few exceptions. And what else was about to happen? The British blues scene with Cream, just three guys. 
Led Zeppelin, three guys and a singer, and all that stuff, just very basic things. And that's exactly, Brian identified that. He was good at prognosticating that. I got to use that word more, that. (laughs) And he was right there on the spot at the right time. Of course, Smiley Smile was not uh, the biggest hit in the world. It also wasn't the biggest flop in the world, but. Yeah. And a lot of Beach Boys fans thought that that was the Smile album that he was working on. And uh, like our friend David, who we mentioned in the previous episode, I seem to remember he said when Smiley Smile came out, oh, okay, it's that Smile album. He just called it Smiley Smile now. See. Because we didn't know. I can dig your logic. I don't quite agree. And I think I might be a little bit kind of poisoned by the fact that I never listened to the Smiley Smile album until I heard Smile stuff. Oh. And Mm -hmm. to me, Smiley Smile just sounds very murky and underproduced. However, I can dig your logic if you kind of transfer it to Wild Honey. Oh, yeah. Because Wild Honey, I think, is kind of the nice little compromise where it's... It's something that is commercially accessible. Still some stuff that's a little different because it had more of an R&B flavor than the Beach Boys normally had. Yeah. But also very kind of stripped down. Yes. I think that's, except for how she boogalooed it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand that song. <laughs> that, that song. That song should have been a romp in a monkey's yeah, episode. Yeah. <laughs> but Wild Honey, I think, serves that, per- which may have been part of the idea since Wild Honey came out pretty soon after Smiley Smile. Yeah, it came out in, what, November, I think? And yeah. Smiley Smile came out September 18th, 1967. Yeah. And yeah, I think, yes, yeah, that's a good way to look at it because it, it seems, it does seem that you have the two extremes of Smile and Smiley Smile and Wild Honey is the happy medium. And it turned out to be a really good album, too. Yeah. I mean, the production on that is much brighter yeah. and more cheerful. Mm-hmm. And I just think it works better to me. Smiley Smile does not. I, I, I'm i not going to get into it because that's not what this episode is about. No. And of <laughs> course, like just one more thing to add is that uh, I think it was David Anderley who was trying to tell Brian, look, use Brother Records for your special projects like mm-hmm. Smile and stick with Capital for the Beach Boys projects. And that would have been an interesting thing to have happen. Like if if that would have happened, Brian could have taken as long as he wanted and finished Smile while still fulfilling Beach Boys duties. So. And perhaps had would have taken enough time for the world to catch up with him. Yeah. I mean, because if Smile had come out, say, in maybe 68, it probably would have been better received. Well, yeah, because by that time you had your Proko Harems, your Moody Blueses, and... Well, you had, I mean, you had young people were getting more into listening to full albums. Yeah. And that was probably also just the dawn of FM radio. Yes. I mean, which really started doing the whole playing a whole album thing probably like around 1970 71 yep but AOR that was probably when it was just starting mm-hmm. so it probably would have been better received then but of course what have i said 
Smile could not have been finished until it was because Darian needed to grow up. Brian needed Darian Sahanaja. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I don't I don't mean to hog the spotlight here, but I really want to go one more here because another item on my list fits right in with this, and it might be on your list too, actually. Another good decision, and this was actually a conscious intentional decision, pulling out of Monterey. I think that was the best thing they could have done. Well, yeah. It's not on my list, but I do agree with that. Now, if they had gone to Monterey and done your standard issue Beach Boys set, they would have been laughed out of the arena. Yeah, I'm sure that was that was not the kind of crowd you wanted to play that stuff but for. But in an ideal world, if there had been a Monterey thing, it would not have been something build the Beach Boys. I mean, it could have even just been Brian Wilson or Brian Wilson Presents or something like that, where he could have had basically a super group of the best wrecking crew people with members of the Beach Boys and maybe even some other people as vocalists. Yeah. And even having like the Sid Sharp strings and having a whole horn section and basically having what he did for the Smile Tour, like having a pretty full stage of musicians to present smile music, probably some pet sound stuff, maybe even full, pulling a few oldies out of the bag, yeah. but having it performed almost like like a pop orchestral thing, which would have been very 1967, yeah. especially right on the heels of Inside Pop, which was talking about that, mm -hmm. where you had people who were Leonard Bernstein and you know people who were big deals in the classical world saying, hey, pop music is doing some really amazing things too, and we can't write that off. We need to listen to that and pay attention and give these people their due. Yeah. So it probably would have been terrific. Just don't call it the Beach Boys and don't act like it's just your standard issue Beach Boys set. Yeah, and uh, I pulled up, while you were talking, I pulled up a list of performers who were at Monterey. Well, first of all, uh, before I forget to mention this, when you listen to other Beach Boys concerts or any Beach Boys concerts from 1967, be it the famous Hawaii shows or the shows they did after that in 67, there was just something just kind of hollow about the sound, especially Hawaii. Like, for example, let's assume that had the Beach Boys performed at Monterey, that it would have sounded like, say, the Hawaii concerts. That would have not been a good sound for that crowd. You basically had Dennis pounding on one drum, or, or one or two drums, which, uh, from what I understand, was a Brian decision for that. Uh, you would have had the Baldwin organ, you would have had a bass guitar, and a single guitar, and really not much else. It wouldn't have been a nice full sound like you would have expected. But also, as I look through the artists at Monterey, every single artist that I'm seeing here, unless I'm uh, missing something, they were all relative newcomers to the scene. I think the performers on the list who had the earliest hits were maybe the Birds and Simon and Garfunkel. And those were from, their first hits were around 1965. So basically, this was your time to basically introduce yourself to the world like because you had canned heat you had big brother and the holding company the who 
the Grateful Dead, the Jimi Hendrix experience. Or you had people like, well, I mean, The Who had already had hits in England. In England, But I don't think they were really known here yet. Not really. And, I mean, Simon and Garfunkel, I think, were just really catching on. Like, they had had a couple albums, but I don't think they really caught on until their music was in The Graduate, which was right about that time. And by the way, anybody in radio listening to this, stop playing the single version slash album version of Mrs. Robinson and claiming that it's from the movie. No, it is not. (laughs) That was a completely different version. Anyway, sorry. And uh, my fear is that had the Beach Boys stuck it out and actually played at Monterey, that would have been their last show. Yeah, I mean, they would have been looked at as outdated, old, just no. (laughs) Yeah, like the oldest group I see here is Booker T and the MGs. And again, like if you look at music like Good Vibrations, stuff from Pet Sounds, when they did that at that time, a few years later, things were different. But at that time, they didn't have the firepower to really perform that. I mean, we've heard the concert debut of Good Vibrations from a, yeah. from a Michigan State in Octo- October. Uh, University of Michigan. Oh, University of Michigan. Sorry, Michigan fans. Uh, oh, <laughs> from, uh, was it um, November of 66? October. October 66. I mean, it was, it was very minimalist. Yeah. <laughs> Because they just didn't have the firepower. Yeah, and the Tannerin didn't even come in until the very end in that performance, too. Yeah, so it they wouldn't have been able to really carry out Brian's message. Yeah. And it wouldn't have worked. Mm-mm. So, again, that's why I say they needed the super group. They yeah. needed people who really could do justice to that music and let the Beach Boys do kind of what they do best, which is the singing. Yeah, exactly. According to Mike's book... Oh, wait, book, Ed, let me just interrupt. I will allow that Carl could have been the guitar player in the super group. Okay. Because Carl's yeah. an amazing guitar player. And, that, and hey, but, and a, lo- a lot of uh, Wrecking Crew <laughs> sessions for the Beach Boys, Carl played guitar. Yes, on. he did. But yeah, so... Calm down, Carl fans. I know he's an amazing guitar player and was just as worthy as Wrecking Crew people. So, yeah, he could have done double duty there. Yeah, and speaking of (laughs) Carl fans, according to Mike's book, Carl was the reason they pulled out of Monterey because Carl begged Brian. Mm -hmm. He said, let's not do Monterey. If we do, I'm going to get arrested. Well, yeah, because he had done, um, he was, he had claimed a conscientious objector status and was going through a whole big deal and seriously he was afraid that if he he was so out in public like yeah that that he would have been arrested because they didn't i don't think they had really had gone to court yet and had it settled where he did um community service and he did end up getting arrested before monterey but still yeah (laughs) like he was still kind of in the midst of that so i mean that's definitely a valid reason but the artistic reason, I think, is also just as important. Yeah, I think one or two of the other guys also had reasons to pull out, too. I think Dennis didn't want to do it for some reason. I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it wasn't just Carl. It wasn't just Brian. Yeah. So since I brought it up just a moment ago, let's talk about my next thing. Because I said just a little bit ago that a couple of years after 1966, 
performing something like Good Vibrations on stage would have been a lot different and a lot less minimalist. Because another good thing that the Beach Boys did starting around 1968 was to bring in other musicians as part of their touring band. Yes. To bring in a solid horn section. And it grew over the years where they had additional drummers, keyboard players. Um, Ed Carter's hair. (laughs) Why don't you explain that? I'm trying to remember how that, I'm pretty sure it's our friend Dan, whom we're hoping to have on the uh, podcast in the near future. (laughs) He made a comment about Ed Carter's hair because he had that bushy, like Afro-y hair back in the day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we saw saw him last year at the Owl Show. I don't, his his hair is still a little bit on the fuzzy side, but not quite as Afro-y. There's there's Ed Carter and there's his hair, but... (laughs) But no, they brought in um, additional musicians so that... He's a phenomenal guitar player, by the way. So that the Beach Boys themselves could trade off and come down and sing if they wanted to or handle different duties on stage. But that created a far fuller sound and really, I think, helped them survive the leaner years when their records weren't selling... And they weren't doing as well. And then in the early 70s, starting with that Carnegie, the Carnegie Hall concert in 1971, where they really started getting more and more attention. People weren't buying Beach Boys records. Radio stations weren't playing them as much. But man, people were going to their concerts. They were, yeah. I mean, in 1973, or was it 74, when they were Rolling Stones Band of the Year? 74, I think. Yeah, it was 1974, despite not putting out a record that year except for Endless Summer, which wasn't even on their label. And Child of Winter. Let's not forget Child of Winter. which came out 10 days before the end of the year. (laughs) They were still the band of the year because they had such a hot, solid touring act. Yeah. And even, I love in Mike's book, when he talks about when they toured with Chicago. Now- Anybody who has seen Chicago in concert knows, I talk about firepower. I mean, these guys are awesome in concert. But still, it's like in the Chicago, the Beachago shows in 1975. I think it's supposed yeah. to be pronounced. In 1975, the Beach Boys went out there first and blew the roof off the joint. And yep. Mike's attitude was like, all right, here you go. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, that was after the guys in Chicago were sassing. They're like, oh, yeah. look, look, what's, what's this here? And they ended up having to like bat clean up because <laughs> the Beach Boys put on such a great show and the audience was, they were like probably tired. Oh, and that was actually <laughs> on my list there, the, the Beach Boys in Chicago touring together. Just because, yeah, two great American bands, two powerhouses, especially at that time. So, yeah. With a little bit of crossing each other in yep. terms of harmony and vibe. I mean, Wishing You Were Here oh, yeah. could have been a Beach Boys song. Like yeah. it would have fit perfectly in what the Beach Boys were doing in the early 70s. I mean, yeah. Well, why else would they have grabbed a few of the Beach Boys to sing mm-hmm. on it? You know? Yeah. But just kind of building up their touring act because that was also something they could take with them around the world. So when they could hardly get arrested here, they were going all over Europe and all over other countries and just knocking their socks off with really great music. So that was 
definitely a great idea that kind of still perpetuates to this day. Because hmm. the Beach Boys, I mean, even what Mike and Bruce take out on the road, when we went to see them a couple of years ago, you can't, I mean, you can't deny that the people on stage could play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they did an excellent job of presenting those songs. Yeah. Now, because you brought up those extra players the Beach Boys added to their tours going back to 1968, and by the way, yeah, you're absolutely right. You listen to the sound. It's really, really good, especially uh, I recommend people listening, listen to something from a 1967 concert, like the Washington, D.C. concerts, which, of course, the audio is now legally available thanks to copyright extension releases, and listen to something that was recorded in 1968, like, say, the Live in London album or any of those other shows that have been put out, again, on copyright extensions. There's a world of difference. Mm -hmm. But since we're talking about what happened in 1968, this is going to be a hear me out related to 1968. Apparently a few people agree with me on this from what I've uh, gathered, but the Friends album, nice and mellow, very relaxing. The very last song on it, Transcendental Meditation, this raucous, explosive, cacophonic mess with lyrics about Transcendental Meditation, which is supposed to be a very peaceful activity. People, that was nothing but genius on the part of Brian. I think that was Brian's idea of a really cruel joke. <laughs> and he has a weird sense of humor, according to a lot of people who have known him personally at various times in his life, including to this day. And I say, good on you, Brian. Those of you who say, oh, it should have ended with I went to sleep. Shut up. Just shut up. Transcendental Meditation is brilliant on many, many levels, including that really atrocious edit in the middle of it. I love it. And man, that's how I... Friends is one of my top five Beach Boys albums, and that's one of the reasons. Because of the inclusion of Transcendental Meditation and its positioning on the album. There, you heard me out. Yeah, but what about TM's song? Oh, I love TM's song. That song's a hoot. <laughs> Especially with, like, the fight in the beginning of it. Which just goes to show what we said, or what, well, what you said, and I fully agreed with in the previous episode. The Beach Boys cannot act except maybe oh, no. for Mike. And even in that song, Mike was kind of overdoing it. Yeah. <laughs> Without intentionally, it looks like we are kind of going almost chronologically. So I'll bring we don't up. have to. Yeah, but I, I mean. I just figured like the, the, it just we, so happened that our choices. We might as well. Okay. Because maybe the next thing we can talk about is the fact that Sunflower exists. Oh, yes. Okay. We brought up Sunflower a little bit before, but yeah. Sunflower was kind of the brief shining moment in which all of them work together nicely. Yeah. <laughs> and it really wasn't a Brian-dominated production. I mean, he's all over the album, but it was not his album. Yeah. It was the group's album. And you had Dennis oh, yeah. truly coming into his own and putting out some amazing work as a songwriter, as an arranger, as a producer. I mean, that's the thing. Forever, that was him. Brian yep. just sings on it. Yep. 
Brian wasn't producing it. And also, it really showed Dennis's work ethic. Because if I remember correctly, Stephen Desper said that Dennis was all in on that. He was very serious. He was always on time to record. Yeah, he'd come in early. He was ready to work. Yeah. And it shows. I mean, his work is amazingly good. But then you had something like All I Want to Do, which is probably one of Mike's best non-bass vocals. Seriously, I never realized. I mean, I always thought it was a decent vocal, but I never realized just how great it was until we got the vocals only version on the Feel Flows set. Mm -hmm. Wow, he did a damn good job on that. And it's just such a chill song. It's, I love that song. Yeah. And uh, while we're on that topic, another item on my list was basically other Beach Boys besides Brian stepping up and contributing their own songs, their own productions and things, like going back as as far back as 1968. I especially kind of thought about that when uh, I think it was the 2019 Al show we went to at the City Winery. When Al said, well, there came a time we decided we wanted to help Brian out, take a little weight off his shoulders, and we started writing songs for the group. Like, the rest of us started writing songs, and I never heard it put that way. Well, it's also... I always saw it put as, well, they started writing songs and producing because they had to, because Brian wasn't doing it. Well, no, because Brian still was, but... He was, yeah. It's more like they probably realized they could. I mean, it's like, because we look at... You know, you look at the song, I Can Hear Music, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was, Carl produced it. Brian wasn't even home when they did that. Like, Brian wasn't involved at all. And yet, look at the vocals. Look at the arrangement. Like, Carl knew how to arrange Beach Boys vocals. Mm -hmm. There may have been things that he didn't know that Brian could do. I mean, there's, there's stuff, I'm sure, that was just... Brian's realm, but Carl still could pull it off. Yeah. And I think Dennis could too. Oh, absolutely. Like, again, go back to something like Forever or Got to Know the Woman. And River Song. Oh. Well, that that came a few years later, but like, I mean, they they had definitely learned from being around Brian. Oh, yeah. And could definitely put together a really good cohesive song. So, yeah, maybe it was out of partially out of necessity, but they were able to do it and yeah. they were still able to put out really good work that had their own style to it, which got only better and better. Like, I mean, listen, look at Holland. Yeah. Which especially really Holland. had very little involvement from Brian. Yeah. And the other guys were able to pull it off. Yeah. And, Really, the good decision, the good thing or whatever was just basically the rest of the Beach Boys stepping up and trying basically not to put all their eggs in the Brian basket. Because, mm-hmm. man, we got some good stuff out of them. We got and, feel flows. Yeah. We got, God, what what else? So much. And also, just, just to show you how sometimes they could do a better job than Brian. Case in point, Cotton Fields. Listen to mm. the version Brian produced and then listen to the version Al produced. I do know there are some people who prefer Brian's version, but man, Al's just smokes. Al did a great Ooh. job with that. Wow. But kind of also going back to Sunflower, look at the album cover. It almost is kind of presenting, okay, we're this 
great big California family, that it was taken on a beautiful sunny day on, as we found out a couple years ago, thanks to Endless Summer Quarterly, that the photo was taken on uh, the golf course that Dean Martin owned, I believe. And I gotta wonder if that's when Gina Martin started to enter the... Well, Carl was still married to Annie for a while after that. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> but well, I think it was all kind of related considering that who's the Billy in Dino right. Desi and yeah, Billy? Billy, Billy, Carl's brother in law. Yep. And Dino Desi and Billy, I think, were still doing some stuff even as late as 1970. So I'm sure it was all one big connection there. And I mean, it wasn't just the Beach Boys, but some of their kids. Yeah. Basically saying, wow, we're all family people. And Bruce. And Dennis. <laughs> Dennis didn't have any children. Dennis with... didn't have any kids with him? No. Oh, okay. Because he kind of looks lonely. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he kind of oh, looks... Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. He kind of looks lonely and sad because he was... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because Mike had two of his kids. Al had one of his sons. Brian had either Carney or Wendy. Pretty sure it's Carney. And Carl had... Um, Either All just, little kids look alike to us. So I know, right? Know <laughs> but yeah, it's it's kind of like we're not teenagers anymore. Like we're yeah. kind of growing up, and this album is a little bit more grown up. This album's a little bit more about kind of where we are right now. And I apologize if I've said this before, but anybody out there who caused Sunflower to peak at only 151, I hope you get smashed in the face with a rake. Yeah, but thank you to all those people overseas who bought yeah. the record and helped it make a really a much better showing in yeah. in Europe. <laughs> and basically everywhere else in the yeah. world, probably. But yeah, it truly is a hidden gem. And I'm it's glad It's my favorite non pet sounds beach. And I'm Boys glad album. we have access to it. Oh yeah. Because it was out of print for a very long time. <sighs> yeah. It's definitely a Beautiful piece of work. And even, again, thanks to Endless Summer Quarterly, because for a long time, I remember asking in the various forums that we were on, like, why Sunflower? Why that name? And don't just say, oh, it was some kind of hippy-dippy 1970s sort of thing. It turned out they were, um, Carl was looking through a stack of Orange Crate art labels, like the labels that had been put on Orange Crates that are considered very beautiful artwork and highly regarded in California. And yep. there was one label that caught his eye for um, the Redlands Sunflower brand that had this beautiful sunflower on the label. And if you look at that label compared to the sunflower that's on the back of the record, they're nearly identical. We'll share a picture. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. So yeah. I'm glad that... We know that story now because, again, that even adds even more to the California identity. And the fact that the Orange Crate art labels, I think, were more from all over the state, not just Southern California. So it's kind of honoring a tradition of just the state itself instead of just a particular region. Oh, yeah. And what happened after Sunflower? Well, what I consider to be another good idea, a good decision... The hiring of Jack Riley. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Say what you, and oh my God, I'm just, I just want, need to get this out in the open just so I can People will up. say. <laughs> yeah. 
There was a time when Jack Riley actually joined Pet Sounds mailing list, PSML, back in the uh, early 2000s, I think. And he immediately got severely flamed by people because, hey, when you aren't face-to-face with someone, you have the balls to just just rip them to shreds. Mm-hmm. And people were saying, oh, the same Jack Riley who did this, rah, the same Jack Riley. And he was like, yeah, screw you guys, I'm going home. <laughs> and he did reemerge some years later, too, and answered a few questions. But yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, he lied on his resume about being a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for NBC, blah, blah, blah. I don't care, because look <laughs> at he what the, he was did he the George, the group. The George Santos of his time. Oh, <laughs> but the fact is, Whatever he lied about, he had enough either experience or just natural ability or chutzpah to put the Beach Boys in places they had not been in Mm -hmm. before, which was critical. Because if that hadn't happened, they would have probably would have had to hang it up because they weren't getting airplay. They weren't getting bookings and things were getting pretty dire. And he's the one who made them expand their concerts. He's like, come on, man, your concerts are too short. Let's go two hours. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a significant difference. Because when you are limited to just the usual concert, like you even go out and look for those 1970 concerts, they're fairly short and they're very, very top 40 hits heavy. You expand, you get a little bit more AOR in there, a little bit hipper. Now, was he in the fold? By the time Good Vibrations in Central Park happened? Oh, that's a darn good question. I don't know. All right. So Good Vibrations in Central Park, the actual shows were on July 2nd and July 3rd. Okay. 1971. Because what I'm asking is, would Jack Riley have brokered that deal Hmm. and gotten them in that music festival? That is a darn good question. Because that show was... And I mean, we can even put that as a good thing that the Beach Boys did, whether Jack Riley was involved or not, because that was a kick-ass performance that was shown on television and probably got them a lot more attention because they looked really hip and cool and very of the time. Like they weren't they weren't wearing striped shirts. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they weren't wearing white suits. Oh, Carl was wearing an unfortunately (laughs) ill-fitting... But everything Carl wore back then was unfortunate and and ill-fitting. Oh, man. But, like, yeah, Al had a pretty cool beard, and Mike was wearing, like, a long, flowy shirt and bell-bottom jeans, and, well, I mean, Dennis always looked good. Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And... And whatever else have you there. But, yeah, I mean, Jack Riley kind of pushed them... Into places they hadn't been in before. And yeah, and got them to play longer shows at a time when that was the change happening in music. That concerts weren't just going to be 20, 30 minutes anymore. That people wanted longer shows and Mm -hmm. people were getting booked into bigger venues and getting their concerts simulcast on radio stations, on FM stations. And Doing, you know, there was a big change once we got into the 70s, and Jack Riley 
probably had his ear to the ground yep. and knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And he also got them to go to Holland, <laughs> which I don't, <laughs> that is debatable, that is but debatable. they did turn out some good music there. Yep. So Yeah, they, they really did. That's also <laughs> in my top five Beach Boys albums. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Something else that happened in the early 70s was Carl bringing into the fold two guys by the name of Blondie Chaplin and Ricky Fatar. Yes. From a band called The Flame. Yep. South African band who did amazing music and unfortunately not enough of it. Yeah. But Carl got Blondie and Ricky into performing with the Beach Boys, both in the studio and on the road. Again, that also helped really up their cred in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, I don't think it was ever like, hey, look, the Beach Boys have two black guys or two guys from South Africa or whatever. Like, I don't think it was ever put out like that, but more just the fact, like, the proof was in the music that oh yeah, these guys brought their playing ability well, in Blondie's case, singing ability, mm-hmm. and also writing. And they were able to kind of turn things in a slightly different direction. And even though they came from a totally different place, their vibe totally worked with what the Beach Boys were doing in the early 70s. Oh, yeah. Especially by the time it got to Holland. Oh. Yeah. Leaving they, this town. Yeah, how oh. they, they merged together so well in that album. Yeah. Leaving this town, if you have not listened to that, go now. Especially the concert version. Ooh. And if you can track down the album they released on Brother Records, it is so worth it. We, we do not have a copy, and I was basically, I missed out on a copy because I did not check the new arrivals bin at one of the record <laughs> stores near, near us, and a friend of ours did ah. and found it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm never going to miss that again. <laughs> But yeah, it is so good. Oh, and their unreleased second album, the stuff on that, which was briefly available, every song was, but not complete. That was a good listen to. I have not heard any of their 60s stuff, though. I can't comment on that. But definitely see if you can get a hold of their first and only really brother album. Yeah, which also shows kind of the quality that we were looking at Without Brian, because then yeah. Brian had absolutely nothing to do with bringing in these guys. They were people that Carl discovered and started talking to, and things went from there. Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful because, I mean, even even in Brian's shows of more recent years, Blondie Chaplin steals the show. Yeah. <laughs> Just in terms of his singing, his character, his guitar playing, he is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, thank you, Carl, for that. I think maybe a good natural progression from here. Now, this is another hear me out thing. And actually, maybe it's not a hear me out. Maybe a lot of people would agree with this, but this is going into some controversial territory here. I think one of the good decisions that was made at least at first it was a good it was a good idea at the time i'll put it to you that way sending brian to dr landy they pretty much had to well yeah i remember i don't remember where it was i don't know if it was interview an interview with larry king or if it was somewhere in beautiful dreamer or what when uh, 
Melinda said, they lived just down the road from UCLA Medical Center. Why didn't they just take him there? Well, (laughs) first of all, I'm not going to fault Melinda for saying that. I'm not. Because, you know, she might be using modern day logic, like current day logic, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, say, like 1975 logic, in which you did not want your your star, your star loved one going to a mainstream publicly known (laughs) venue for mental health treatment. And also it might've been, here's a theory that I came up with. It might've been that maybe Brian was more, was just mortified at the thought of going to some kind of mental health place. That's the same logic that actually ended up with, uh, sadly, Keith Moon, assumingly accidentally offing himself with all those pills. Because he was supposed to do his therapy in a mental hospital, but he was deadly scared mm-hmm. to go to one. And that's completely fair because yeah. the treatment of mental disorders, um, psychotherapy has, I mean, even just in the last 10 years has changed. Yeah. 10 years, 20 oh, yeah. years has grown and changed by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the 70s, they were probably still doing things like electroshock therapy. I mean, the methods and the means were nowhere near what they're like today. And that's not even saying that what they do today is perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better. And there probably was a lot to be scared of, both in the treatments and also just the stigma. Yeah, I mean, nowadays you have people, including Brian, who talk publicly Mm -hmm. about mental health. There are young celebrities who have talked about their struggles, their ups and downs. People are very, very open to it. And I see that difference with just in my teaching career that like when I started, the difference between then and now with kids being willing to accept help, being open about their struggles, being able to say, I have anxiety, I have depression. That's huge. Oh, yeah. And In 1975, you could not talk about that. Yeah. And the thing is, we have heard bits and pieces over the years from people who know things about how there were times Brian was admitted for... For more mainstream therapy. Yeah, for psychotherapy and things like that. So, I mean, Brian had been, like, it's not like they never did anything and then suddenly signed up with Landy. Landy was almost like a last resort. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, even the guy who got Eric Clapton off drugs couldn't help him. I mean, things were getting very dire. And the fact that Landy had been working with some other celebrities and had had some success stories it's kind of like, hey, what have we got to lose? Yeah. Like, we need to do something because otherwise Brian's going to be dead. Yeah. And as crazy as his techniques were, it obviously worked. It yeah. got Brian, he got Brian off drugs. He got Brian to lose weight. He got Brian to be more active with the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all be that. able and, to, like, say, tend to his personal hygiene. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank God for that. I mean, considering Brian would bathe himself in the swimming pool because he was terrified of the shower for a time. I mean, that's real scary stuff. And yeah, you're right that Landy's at that time, he probably did save Brian's life. Yeah. And then when they canceled Landy's services because he was too expensive, Brian declined very quickly. And of course, we, we do have to acknowledge that he did have another therapist after Landy that 
he worked with and he really liked and still got good results from. But I think the story was that guy got killed in a freak accident yeah. or something. And it really, I think it really upset Brian. It helped him spiral yeah. back down. Oh, yeah. And then they got back with Landy. And at least for the first few years, I mean, Landy was able to write the ship. Unfortunately, he went way too far. Oh, yeah. To and say the least. I mean, that, that probably would have been better for the his family to have gone in and say, okay, we're going to wean you off Landy now because, but yeah. they didn't. I mean, how would they know? How, yeah. How would they know? And would they have been able to, I mean, just it's crazy because like sending him back to Landy in 82 probably saved Brian's life again mm -hmm. and pulling him away from Landy 10 years later probably also saved his life. Well, I think it did yeah. <laughs> literally because from the things we've heard, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and again, uh, I refer to Mike's book about some stories that he was told about what went on. It's like, yikes. Yeah. Pretty scary stuff. Oh. And that can take us to my hear me out, <laughs> which is 1976. 1976 should never have happened. They should have gone straight <laughs> to 77. And the reason I say hear me out is because it is kind of a double-edged sword in that the Beach Boys had tremendous success that year, but maybe at a cost, because that kind of ended the artistic trajectory they had been on yeah. with Holland and all of that, you know, and also really proving to themselves that they could turn out great music without Brian's heavy involvement. They wanted Brian involved. They of were course. not trying to oust him, but they could do it. Mm -hmm. And they could be a viable act, a viable band, if Brian wasn't going to be participating. And in 1976, I was just a little tiny kid then. But even still, I remember how things were. Everything was red, white, and blue. Yep. Yeah, we've <laughs> From, talked about this. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was star spangled yep. like crazy. Yep. And I think after Vietnam and Richard Nixon, Watergate, all the various tragedies of the early 70s, problems with the economy, the generation gap, just all these things that were coming to a head, some of them definitely necessary, like women's rights, civil rights, gay rights. These things did need to come to a head. But everybody, I think, just wanted to say, hey, can we just take a moment and just party <laughs> and be, be happy for a moment? Mm -hmm. And I think it was just the bicentennial was a really good excuse to do that. Yeah. And the Beach Boys being at the center of that, America's banned. Yep. I mean, even with 15 big ones with the cover art that evokes the Olympic rings, because the Olympics were that year too. And yep, it's just like, they, were. they hit the mark right for a brief moment <laughs> where they had an album that was well-received mm -hmm. that had Number a mix, eight, I believe. that had a mix of really strong covers plus good originals. Yeah. The album went to number eight. Rock and roll music went to number five. And I mean, yes, that was a cover that had been done before by other artists, including mm -hmm. the Beatles. But 
it was undeniably Beach Boys. They put their mark on it, which is what you want with a cover. Speaking of which, this is a request I have for people listening who might know how to get a hold of this. A friend of mine told me that, uh, I think it was uh, WNEW in New York, used to play a mix of Chuck Berry's version and the Beach Boys version and the Beatles version of oh, wow. rock and roll music. <laughs> uh, if anybody knows how to get a hold of a copy of that, that would like, be I'd like, I'm curious as to how that sounds. Uh, hit us up to next podcast at gmail.com, yeah. I think. And yeah, I mean, again, there are things that could have like, it's okay, should have been much oh, better yeah. promoted. Yeah, we talked about for that. For a single, yep. but still just playing, doing a huge tour that summer. It hit the spot. And for the diehard fans, hey, they could see Brian again. Yeah, I mean, the whole Brian is Whether back Whether they like the result of seeing him again, that's another question. Well, the fans don't know. The fans only know what they see in front of them on the stage. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Yeah, they see a fat bearded guy who sounds like an ashtray. <laughs> who had, who's wearing a... A robe with his <laughs> chest hanging out. But it was 1976. It was ni- yeah, there were all kinds of that, very though. questionable <laughs> yeah. fashion choices at that time. Yeah, yeah, you didn't need to have your brain melted on drugs to do that. Yeah, it was... Uh, but yeah, just to, to piggyback on that, yeah, I actually had 15 big ones as one of my things that they did right. Even though probably a lot of people don't agree with me, including like, the Beach Boys themselves. And Terry Hemmert. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I waited four years for this crap. Yeah. For those unfortunates who don't know who Terry Hemmert is, she is a legendary DJ in Chicago who has been with WXRT for just about 50 years now. 1973 is when she started there. Do you know how hard it is for anybody, especially a woman, to be at the same station for 50 years? That does not happen in radio. And she is so cool and awesome. You can follow her posts on Facebook. She writes extensively about all kinds of memories and artists. And she puts up like a playlist of songs that she thinks are cool. And and she is a renowned Beatles fan. In fact, that's why she got into radio, because she wanted to meet the Beatles. <laughs> Mission accomplished on at least two of them. Yes. She loved Holland. And then... For 15 big ones, she's like, I waited three years for this crap. <laughs> <laughs> but so, the yeah. Is, 15 big ones. I Mind you, I first heard 15 big ones fairly early in my fandom. Even before the Caribou CDs were out, I, had a, a, I borrowed a copy from a library. And I really liked it, despite Brian's croaky voice and everything. It was a fun listen. Because, like it or not, it really is classic Beach Boysy in so many ways. You have, what is it, I think, eight covers and seven originals, or, or, or is it the other way around, whatever. It's like, basically, let's just say half originals, half covers. It's exactly what they needed to do mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Given how they were essentially an oldies act at the time, I mean, what better thing could you want in 1976 in America than picking up a Beach Boys album, looking at the back cover, oh, look, they did this really cool Chuck Berry song, just like they did with Surfing USA. Let's see how that sounds. Diehard fans will be like, oh, look at this, produced by Brian Wilson. How long has it been since we saw that? They well, see new songs on there written by Brian. 
They see, oh, they finally put Susie Cincinnati on an album after putting it out on about 18 singles. Okay, do you really think that people <laughs> the I, pe- people didn't buy the singles that Susie Cincinnati was on? That's the problem. And it's also kind of, and I know some people might cringe at this, and I kind of cringe at it too, but it's like albums like Holland, no matter how great they are, they didn't light the world on fire. I mean, Sail on Sailor is a fantastic song. Like, the highest chart position, I think, was, what, 45 or 34, something like that. And it got that highest chart position when it was reissued in 1975. Yeah. It did really well in some markets, though. Like, Chicago, it did pretty well in. But Endless Summer went to number one. Yeah. It's kind of like the people have spoken. And I am not blaming Endless Summer on the Beach Boys suddenly becoming an oldies act, because, number one... Their transition into a back into an oldies act was very smooth, actually, because as late as 1977, they were still playing album tracks from, say, Surf's Up and Holland. Yeah. But I think part of the reason for that going back is partly because they lost their creative mojo. And also, I really think now that maybe teaming up with Chicago really started that spark. Well, that's the thing. They were, what did I say earlier, that in the early 70s, their biggest source of revenue was touring. Yep. And why would people go to Beach Boys concerts for the fun surf sun girls cars? Yeah. I mean, that's what people still go to Beach Boys concerts and, for. And, and at that time, that's what people were going to see Chicago for, too. They didn't want to hear these random album tracks because their whole modus operandi at first, like, say, going back to their Carnegie Hall shows that came out in their fourth album, was... They would literally play whatever they felt like playing at that particular moment. Yeah. Like you look at the shows they did at Carnegie Hall, different show every time. Hmm. No two shows were the same. And then eventually they all realized, wait a minute, the audience wants only to hear the hits. And I know Terry Kath wasn't happy about that, but. <laughs> but it's kind of like, I mean, even Paul McCartney, he talks about creating a set list and thinking, if I was going to a Paul McCartney concert, what would I want to hear? (laughs) And I know that, you know, there's always going to be people who break furniture over this and whatever. There's always the people who are like, well, why aren't you doing this wing song or something like that? Move good time. Excuse me. But still, it's his show. It's his choice. But it's kind of like he does kind of have to put himself in the shoes of why are people buying tickets to this show? What do they want to see? Or what would they really miss if it wasn't there? Yeah. That's why I don't think there will ever be a show where he does not do Hey Jude. Oh, of course. <laughs> it, was, it was a huge honking hit. I mean, I would think. Well, also, he's going to do Hey Jude. He's going to do Yesterday. I mean, also, I think this isn't unique to Paul. I think this goes for any artist. You write a song in your bedroom or tour bus or office or wherever. You sit at a piano or a guitar and you go through all the work and drafts and everything of writing a song and then all the work of being in the studio, recording it, producing it. And then it comes to where you have an arena full of people, thousands of people who know every note, every word, every ad lib, every cough (laughs) that ended up on the tape, and they will sing it as heartily as anything in their whole life. Like the DVD that came out of that tour, where you have 
clips from all different shows where you have people mm-hmm. like Jack Nicholson heartily singing Hey Jude. Yep. And that's got to be a total blast for any performer to know that there are people, thousands of people singing along to your song. Oh, yeah. That you wrote that came out of your heart and your soul and your brain. So it's like, yeah, you got to play the hits, the well-known stuff, because that's what got people into you in the first place. Mm -hmm. You can do the album tracks and the more obscure stuff, but there's some things you just got to do. Yeah. And people go to a Beach Boys show for the Beach Boys. Mm -hmm. So I think they kind of had to give into that a little bit. I mean, it's just kind of like Leonard Nimoy wrote a book called I Am Not Spock. And then years later, he wrote a book called I Am Spock. Yep. (laughs) Like you have to embrace it eventually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because also that will make you a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. But hey, since we're talking about these, uh, these concerts, what people expect, another thing that's on my what did they do right list, the 4th of July shows in D.C. Oh, my God. And Atlantic City. Don't forget that. Well, that that. was supposed to be D.C. Yeah, but the fact is they were able... Until James Watt said, no more rock and roll here. They attract an undesirable element. I think James (laughs) Watt is the undesirable element. (laughs) Yeah, but, I mean, they were able to turn that around and still do a 4th of July concert that attracted close to a million people, I think. (laughs) But, yeah, the the shows they do at the... That was exact... That was perfect of them to just be able to do that, have those 4th of July shows in front of the Washington Monument. I mean, where else, what better way to celebrate? I don't even know what what July 4th actually commemorates because there's all that debate about, well, the, that actually the country actually started July 2nd and the thing was signed on July 3rd and all this. So well, just, decla- let's just pretend that 4th of July is the actual day um, the country. The Declaration was- of Independence actually says... July 4th, 1776. It says, but that's not when it was signed and written. Okay, fine, but But that date is on it, and that's what we do, so hush. So so basically, it's the anniversary of of the date that's on the Declaration of Independence, so we'll leave it at that. But yeah, those shows were amazing and got huge attention. They were broadcast on television. I mean, what better way to celebrate America than see the Beach Boys at the nation's cap, America's band at America's capital? Yeah. And even like the show in 84, the year after Dennis died, who did they get to fill in on drums? A very sweaty Ringo Starr. Yes. <laughs> I mean, not a bad fill in, huh? <laughs> no, no. And uh, didn't they have Mr. T one year or was that just on tour or something? I don't know. But we recently watched the 1980 concert that was aired on HBO. And uh, the thing is, uh, I mean, of course, we were watching it from the eyes of people who know just like most probably most people listening now who know what was going on behind the scenes, if you had no idea that there were so many issues within the band, so many problems happening, you wouldn't know it by looking at the performance. It was not. still really good. Of course. It was solid. It was nice and solid. Well, Dennis was pretty much in solid form. Brian was doing pretty decently too. Yeah. So it, it was re- a really enjoyable show. Yeah, and kind of... To segue to my next thing is something that the Beach Boys, I feel, did right. It wasn't like they did this all themselves, but more the fact that they consented and had involvement with making it happen. Documentaries. Mm. Because what does the Beach Boys American Band documentary end with? 
1984 4th of July concert. Yeah. And it also had clips from some of the other 4th of July shows, including Atlantic City. When Beach Boys American Band was made, it came out in um, 85. The documentarians had pretty much open access. <laughs> they had open access to the what was in the Capitol vault. Yeah. And they pulled some pretty interesting stuff, interesting alternate mixes from there. And a little thing called fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and um obviously the documentary was made when Brian didn't have any say because he was yeah. basically tied up with Landy and uh when Brian actually did have a little bit of a say in it they edited that footage out. So yeah, for a but, brief time you could not get that documentary with the smile footage in it. But it had film of Brian in the fire hat. From- well, that was from the Good Vibrations promo outtakes though. Yeah, so. but still they had they got a hold of that somehow. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, there were things used in that documentary that were from the um, the Beach Boys film that was done in 1976 by that Lauren was produced Michaels. by Lauren Michaels. But there also there were some clips that were recorded. Like I think uh, Mike did some his appearance in American Band didn't look like it was from 1976. I no, think that I mean, was yeah. and Al too. Yeah, I think all their they, narrations were current. I think except they for did Brian's. some. They did some newer stuff. Well, Dennis too. Well, yeah, Dennis. Yeah, they had so much good stuff, and that was that really gave me a great education because it was shown a lot on HBO, so I got to see it pretty frequently. Yeah, I didn't really and see it till the 90s. That gave me a fantastic education, but you also had the Lorne Michaels special, yep. which had, among other things, the which this clip is in American Band of when uh, Belushi and Aykroyd took him surfing. Yep. <laughs> and it's like, I didn't wax my board yet. Should have thought of that sooner. <laughs> so you had that, you had American Band, and then in the 90s, we had I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. Yep. We had Endless Harmony. Mm-hmm. Beautiful Dreamer, The Smile Documentary. Thank you, David Leaf. I mean, we had kind of a string of really strong documentaries. I even like Nashville Sounds. That the Beach Boys, like I said, they weren't, these weren't documentaries they produced, but they had cooperation. Yeah. Like they obviously allowed the people making the documentaries to have access to recordings, to video, to Things that they would have needed Beach Boys approval yeah. with. And, and we fairly recently rewatched an American band, and it just hit me when we were rewatching it just how groundbreaking that thing was at the mm-hmm. time. Because there was some dynamite stuff in there. You had the home videos that Dennis shot that we all mm-hmm. thought were promo films for Smile. No, no it was just foot footage that from Dennis's camera. Yeah. Uh, we had outtakes from the uh, 76 TV special. Uh, we had. Uh, and Brian's all the, birthday party and the little promo fi- and the little promo films from Pet Sounds, yeah. not just Sloop John B, but the I just wasn't made for these times and With that's not me. With some artistic liberties taken yeah. to, in the editing, but yeah, I mean, I know some of it like doesn't quite match up with the music, but it's still film from that time. And a lot of the clips that are in there are still hard to find. Like you're not going to find that Red Skelton clip of In My Room in mm-hmm. full, like on YouTube. I don't think. Yeah. For me, being a kid and not 
not knowing about things like interlibrary loan, where I only had one Beach Boys book in my town library yeah, right. and nothing really in print that I could get my hands on at the bookstore in the mall. Mm-hmm. That was a great part of my Beach Boys education. Oh, yeah. So I'm very grateful that they gave their blessing to these various documentaries. And you know what I'm very grateful they gave their blessing to? What? The 1992 for CD and eventually cassette releases. I have that on my list too. Ah, awesome. See, we think alike quite a lot. (laughs) Isn't that scary? (laughs) And it came at just the right time because shortly after those twofers came out is when I got my first CD player for Christmas. And uh, before then, to get my fix of Beach Boys albums, I would go to the library and check out what they had, which was mainly cassettes. And they were all the capital budget reissues. Mm many of which were missing songs off of them and not songs such as uh Cassius Love versus Sonny Wilson I think was missing off of what was retitled fun 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 yeah and that's what I had to go by thankfully they left basically everything starting with party and later they left intact they left beach boys concert intact and the christmas album was left intact but for the first time I was actually able to hear most of the albums in full with bonus tracks mm-hmm. and with pretty extensive liner notes. Yes. Oh, I also did hear Surfing USA in full because uh, one of the local libraries had a mono vinyl copy of it. So I would copy my library's cassette of the Surfing USA album and then drop in Stoked and Surf Jam from that. But ha- with the two furs, you didn't have to do that. So you had two Beach Boys albums on one CD plus bonus tracks plus liner notes, and even the CDs themselves had the capital single label with the orange and yellow swirl on it, which was just just a... It was a nice touch. It's like chef's kiss right there. Beautiful. Yeah. And again, to bring up the Beatles, this was something where the Beach Boys far exceeded the Beatles. Because at that time, now this was 1990. Yep. So just when... CDs were really becoming the big thing, and record companies were ditching vinyl, so just going CD and cassette. And at that time, the Beatles had had their albums on CD since about 1987-88. But what were they? They were just the Parlophone album no liner notes whatsoever. Except for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Except for, I was going to say, yeah. wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sgt. Pepper actually had a booklet and the artwork from the album mm-hmm. and the little pictures of the cutouts and things like that. Yeah. And even a nice little guide to who's who on the cover. But that was it. Because Sgt. Pepper on CD got a big deal and a bit. everybody was talking about it and going crazy about it. But... All the other Beatles albums had nothing. Yeah. I mean, not even the back covers for the most part. No, nothing special, no bonus tracks. And even like the mastering wasn't all that great. Well, to be fair, it wasn't great in the 1992 furs either, which Mark himself admitted. He said, yeah, I used no noise on that and I really wish I hadn't. Well, I mean, yeah, to be fair, like mastering from analog sources at that time was still pretty rudimentary. Yeah. I mean, on CD, at CD releases at the time, because remember they used to have the little codes. Yep. A-A-D-A-D-D-D-D. Unless you were picking up like a classical CD where a lot of them were DDD. Yeah. They had been recorded digitally, mastered digitally, you know, everything was digital. They were still kind of working on the 
technology to take analog recordings and really do them justice. Yeah. So we weren't going to see better mastering for a couple years yet, but they still did a fantastic job that far exceeded what Beatles fans got. So, yeah. yay! And they were in print for about four years, and then they took them out and replaced them with single album per CDs, no bonus tracks. Which was depressing. <laughs> and then in 2001, they were reissued as twofers with the bonus tracks. We didn't get all of them. We only got the 1965 one, and I thought it sounded terrible, so I didn't yeah. buy the rest. And building onto that, what I'm also glad they allowed for is in 2012, another set of twofers, not all the albums, but many of them, mono stereo yes. on the same disc. Yes. And many of them stereo for the first time, and they mm -hmm. sound really good. And also, eventually, we did get the post-1969 Beach Boys yes. albums also in the twofer treatment. So, yeah, but without bonus which, tracks, but still. You know, many of them, I mean, they had been put out on CD in... Um, 1991. Yeah, but it was blink and you miss it. Yep. I mean, they were extremely hard to find. Mm -hmm. So it was good that they finally put those out. When was that? Nine, like 2000. 2000? Yep. Yeah, because that was about the time when they put out that new three CD series of greatest hits where you yeah. had two that were kind of the sun and fun and whatever. Yeah. And then the third CD was just... 1970 and on. Yeah, 1973, 86. Yeah. And kind of a side to that, again, this was more a probably a record company decision, not so much the Beach Boys themselves, but the Good Vibrations box set. Oh, uh, yeah. Which was revolutionary. That's what got me to be the massive fan that I got to be. Because by the time that box, I know, I think I mentioned this before, by the time that box came out, my fandom was kind of waning until I heard. <laughs> the disc five version of God only knows. And I went to the store to buy that just for that one track. That was all <laughs> I cared about. And then it got me hooked on disc three and I needed sunflower after that. See here, I was a lifelong fan in that box set. I was able to replace a lot of old tapes and yep. several generation copies of things that I hadn't had on other sources and definitely filled in some some blanks for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was that was a must have. Another hear me out. Oh no. Kokomo. I have to resign and say you're probably correct. In that it hit the spot. Just like 1976, it hit the right spot. That song was perfect for 1988. It sounded exactly of the moment. It had hook. It was definitely a Beach Boys song, but it didn't sound like an oldie. Like yeah. it sounded like something that was recorded right now. And even the video, which was filmed on the beach in front of Disney's Grand Floridian Hotel, which had only just opened like a year or two earlier. I mean, it was perfect for that moment. Now, the fact that they didn't follow it up with something equally as great, but yeah, that's, the with that's still not our topic. The problem with still cruising is it sounded too much like Kokomo, I think. Okay, but we're not that talking song. about the problem with. Yeah. We're talking about the good stuff. Well, yeah. And Kokomo hit the spot. It went to number one. It deserved to go to number one. Yeah. 
So yeah, I out, can't hate that song ever. <laughs> it came out right around the time I was starting to get curious about the Beach Boys. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, or I remember saying out loud, oh, Brian sounds pretty good. And then and <laughs> my brother said, that's Carl, actually. Yeah. But I just remember thinking, okay, this is kind of clever because... It's kind of like an old Beach Boys song, but a grown-up version. Well, yeah. Now they're grown-up, they can go to like places other than amusement parks and do the <laughs> beach surfing. They can take cruises. They can go to these exotic locations, like yeah. the Florida Keys and Indiana. Well, it's also kind of like what everybody wants, you know, to get away from your busy life and lie on a beach with a drink and... Just enjoy yourself. Yeah. The Beach Boys are still selling, like, happy fantasies that were accessible. And something about Kokomo that I can't say about many Beach Boys songs at all. When that song came out, I was teaching myself how to play guitar. And I found it very easy to play along with, for the most part. Because you start with a C, and then next you have a C major seventh, which you just lift your index finger off and... And it was just easy to follow along, except for that F minor chord. And um, that's something very peculiar, a Beach Boys song that's easy to play along with on a guitar. Hmm. Not many do that. Yeah. Yeah. You don't really have that in Brian's world. Well, well, yeah. In John Phillips' world, yes. In Brian's world, no. So, yeah. And kind of along the same lines, that's why God made the radio. Ah, that's on my list, too. The song. Not oh, the song, okay. I'm talking specifically about that song. When I first heard that song, I mean, there were a couple things about it. And I know that there are a whole bunch of different people on that song. Not all of them are Brian and the other Beach Boys. But the fact is, I mean, Al is on it, Bruce is on it, Mike is on it. And the, just Brian's production that he can still, he could still get men who were in their 60s, to sound like young, you know, to sound yeah. like youth. They didn't sound like crotchety old men. <laughs> yeah, right. And there are things about that song that are just, it takes you back and back and back. And every time you listen to that song, like you, you can hear the radio and the ocean and everything else. Mm -hmm. And it's just the first time I heard it, I was just stunned. Well, hey, Jim Peterick, who wrote most of the song, what was his big hope for that song someday, that the Beach Boys would record it? Mm-hmm. He wrote it for them. But I mean, Brian's production, it's almost heartbreaking. It's that good. <laughs> it is so good. Yeah. And actually, my whole thing here was not just That's Why God Made the Radio, but 2012 for the Beach Boys, period. Oh, yeah. And that's, by the way, also when those mono stereo twofers came out. Yeah. Because that was just done so well. And I just remember that song, though, was a big highlight for me from both their concert that year and uh, when uh, they did it at Brian's concert the following mm -hmm. year or two. It was just such a good song. But the show itself, we went to see the show we went to up to Milwaukee. It was at Summerfest. Yep. Marcus. And it was like me. everything about it was even how they were dressed, the clothes they were wearing. Everybody looked great. You know, if Carl were still alive, he would have still been wearing that dark suit. Well, yeah, because that was his <laughs> thing. But I mean, they were all wearing those 
kinds of like button down long sleeve shirts that are meant to be untucked and they have like floral prints or paisleys or stripes. And if you roll up the sleeves, it's like a different color underneath. They're meant to like, you know, you won't be looking sloppy like you're wearing a t-shirt, but it's still comfortable and casual. Like it was a really ideal look for them. And the and backup you, band they assembled from Brian's group and Mike's group. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. And you had David Marks was yep. there. I mean, you had all the people who should be there. Except Blondie and Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> and I love how Mike Mike definitely poked fun at himself with Be True to Your School. Well, he, he'd been doing that routine for years. Yeah, though. but I hadn't seen it. So I... Got to see it there for the first time. and I mean, It goes, is fresh Neen. if you've never seen it before, so I'll, I'll give them that. And, I mean, they had, like, little fun stuff, but they were having such... They looked like they were having such yeah. a good time, and they played everything. They had tributes to Dennis and to Carl that were beautiful. It was just... Everything about that show was perfect. There were no yeah. cheerleaders. There was nothing embarrassing. <laughs> well, they hadn't had cheerleaders in years. I know, but thank God they didn't bring them back because yeah. that was horrible. Yeah. I saw one of those cheerleader shows. Yeah, but my first time seeing the Beach Boys was right after they ditched the cheerleaders. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, everything was right. Everything about that whole reunion thing was per- like the album was great. And there were a couple of clunkers on it, but Beach Boys historian Andrew Doe put it best. He said, that album is better than it deserves to be. (laughs) (laughs) It was just so well done. And uh, another kind of uh, a little subset of uh, the good decisions, the good things that they did, they vetoed Brian's suggestion for the name of the album. Summer's Gone. He wanted to call it Summer's Gone. But they all said, no. I don't really like you. That's why God made the radio as a title, but I'd rather have that than Summer's Gone. Yeah, but that song is beautiful. It really is. That's definitely a Pet Sounds callback. Yeah. It's it's an everything callback, really. Well, not smile. There's nothing smile about it. No, but I mean, it definitely evokes uh, Caroline No. Hmm. And, well, really, you take like the last three songs oh you're talking summers i thought you were talking that's why god made the radio no i'm talking summer's gone because those the last three songs where you have from there to back again pacific coast highway and summer's gone oh my god summer's gone it's such a sad song though but it's like caroline no it is so sad but it is so beautiful it's something i think brian needed to do like what did we find out about there's a lyric in Summer's Gone? Brian basically recalls one of the last things Carl said to him. I, I guess I'm not going to be around much, Brian. And Brian says, well, I think I'm going to stay. He put that in the song. Yeah. And how at the end, I mean, yeah, it's got a little bit of Caroline No. It's got a little bit of wind chimes. It's got like the heroes and villains music box. It's just... I'm so glad, Brian. I think it's Brian needed to do that, just like he needed to do Pacific Coast Highway, because <sighs> that is a tribute to Dennis. That is Dennis. Oh, it's got Baby Blue written all yep. over it. Oh, even just the dun dun oh, dun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is very Dennis. Yeah, those last three songs are full of melancholy, but God, mm-hmm. it's so gorgeous on Pacific I Coast mean, Highway. I mean, who does melancholy better than Brian Wilson, really? Mm. <laughs> 
I but, mean, what, but what's something you always tell me about Summer's Gone in an attempt to make me feel better about it? Because it's going to come back next year. That's right. I mean, it's okay. It's It just has to leave for now, but it'll be back. Yeah. We like Summer, by the way. <laughs> my last item on my list, I'm going to have to say the copyright extension releases. Ah, yes. I also count among those, even though some people don't, the uh, Beach Boys Party unplugged, unthistled, unschlocked, whatever they call that, <laughs> also feel flows and sail on sailor sets, because those effectively did extend the copyright. So, oh God, especially when they were actually giving us full releases and not just quick blink and you miss it. We're going to put it in just long enough to fulfill the law and then yank it off the offline mm-hmm. right away. But man, those were so Those cool. were true gifts. I mean, yeah, because you had, oh my God, you had a crap ton of concerts from 1968. You had the Hawaii recordings and the stereo Wild Honey from 1967. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just lots of outtakes, alternate versions. And they snuck out one of those uh, acetate mixes of Child is Father of the Man mm-hmm. on one of them, kind of under the radar. <laughs> but also you can take like... Feel flows and the sail on sailor set, and kind of put them alongside the pet sounds box set. Because hmm. yeah. again, that's another thing we should have mentioned too, with you know, in terms of just box set material that they had to give their approval for the pet sounds box set. Like that's something now you're talking the 1997 one, yes. Okay, it just feels like they're all gifts to the fans because these are not things that casual people like yeah. people who just happen to enjoy surfing usa yeah they're not gonna run out and plunk down a lot of money for the pet sounds box set that was for us yeah th- yeah those copyright dumps they didn't have to do that they could have I mean, just let the copyright lapse for all i mean that was and they could have just done what they eventually started doing just putting like 30 second clips up for like half an hour and then yanking them yeah. off but also yanking them down yanking them down but also i mean you gotta admit that the pet sounds box set was meant to be a boot killer. It was a terrible boot killer, though, because there's a lot. Yeah, I know, but the fact is... It's a wonderful set, but a bad boot killer. But I think that was about the time that everybody started realizing, okay, there are bootlegs out there, and we... Bob Dylan, who actually released... Frank Zappa. Oh, I thought that was Bob Dylan, who actually took the boots. Frank Zappa. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, Bob Dylan had the bootleg series, yeah, but, or the bootleg yeah. tape, the, the basement tapes or whatever. But I think whatever. they saw what the fans were doing yeah. and saying, hey, I could put this material. We can like, do better than that. Like, people are buying this stuff. Why am I not getting the money for it? Yeah. And instead of trying to shut them down, beat them at their own game, mm-hmm. which will shut them down. Yep. Because, yeah, I mean, you can say all you want about Lego My Ego, but I don't think... People are going to buy that and not buy the Pet Sound Sessions box set. Well, the thing is, there were, back in the 90s when people were buying these um, <clears throat> Dutch imports, as uh, we call them now, <laughs> <laughs> because most of them literally were Dutch imports, Yeah, <laughs> uh, we kind of had a gentleman's agreement that if that material ever came out legitimately, we would buy it. We'd yeah. do the right thing and buy well, yeah. it. And of course, when that actually started happening, there were some people saying, oh, why should I buy this? I already have it on bootleg. 
Dude! Do you not remember what we all said back then? And also, don't tell me that the bootleg But this costs $40. It's okay. It's $40 for two CDs. Back then, you were paying $25 to $40 per disc without blinking an eye. Just shut up and get it. Okay, do the right thing. Put money in their pockets. Buy Brian and Mike additional homes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's the right thing to do, but... It just feels very fortunate that somebody somewhere saw that there was an audience for this stuff and said, okay, almost like you've stuck with us all these years. You've been good little fans. Here's your prize. (laughs) And again, calling out to people who might be listening, like say Howie Edelson, Mark Lynette, for God's sakes, even Mike Love, if he, for God knows what reason, wants to hear people talk about the Beach Boys. Yeah. Here's a little thing for you. Take the Sunflower album. Isolate each individual song by their 16 tracks. Oh, I will buy that. I will buy that. Even if it's just a download, put it out in lossless format, be it Flack or Apple lossless, I will buy the sucker. So I think, I think we're done. Yeah, we're at done. Least we're for not, now. Yeah, at least for now. We're not saying this is the only thing they did right. These are the only things they did right. Just how we said when we did our What the Hell Were They Thinking episode, those weren't necessarily the only things they did wrong. So we do <laughs> we'll reserve probably the right come to... Up, re- we'll probably come up with like 14 other things in the next week, but... Yeah, yeah. we're not going to do, we do. Yeah, we're not going to do another one of these episodes in the next week, though, <laughs> or at least we won't release yeah. it in the next week. We'll change things up a bit. But yeah, yeah. that's... that's uh, whew. Okay, wow. And uh, we've been recording for two hours. I don't know if this is actually going to end up two hours, but that's a lot to talk about. So, But that's what we do. Yeah. That's what we've done for the last 25 plus years. And when we take the dog out for her nightly walk, we're probably going to talk more yeah, about this stuff. Yeah, because that's what we that's do. That's what we do. <laughs> oh, so yeah. And uh, just a reminder, you can now listen to our podcast on YouTube if you so desire. I'll put a link to the channel. I I was shocked. I'd upload the stuff to YouTube, and then like minutes later, I'd see the number of plays just go up by by about ten. It's like, what? Who's <laughs> who's doing this? But thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thank you, dear, for talking with me and sharing our conversations with people. Well, I mean, we might as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talk to you again eventually. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Tune X podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can hear us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and just about every other provider out there. If TuneX isn't on your favorite provider, please let us know. You can email us at tunexpodcast at gmail.com. Our website, which includes the show notes, is tunex.fab4it.com. Fab4IT is spelled F-A-B and then the number four and then I-T. Feel free to connect with us on social media. Tunex is on Facebook and we're also on Instagram and Twitter, both under the handle of Tunex Podcast. Our opening and closing theme, Melody 10, was written and performed by Scattered Frog. We'll talk to you next time, friends. Until then, don't Don't back back down down from from that that wave. wave.